gospel lesson. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Luke. And then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor had any respect for people. In that city, there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, Grant me justice against my opponent. For a while, he refused. But later, he said to himself, Though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. The Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God grant justice to God's chosen ones who cry out day and night? Will God delay long in helping them? I tell you, God will quickly grant justice to them. And yet, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. When I was in middle school, we had a roller skating party. And for some reason, my mom took the completely unreasonable position that since I hadn't cleaned my room, I couldn't go. I railed against the injustice of it all, and then I went and cleaned my room. And feeling like I'd outmaneuvered her, I asked her again if I could go, and she said, no, I told you already. I was like, well, yeah, but I cleaned my room only after I told you you couldn't go. But mom, this is, this is really important. Carmen is gonna be there. Yeah. Carmen was my sixth grade yeah. girlfriend. <clears throat> it was pretty serious. And my mom said, well, I guess you should have thought of that when you decided not to clean your room in the first place. And I said, but I did clean my room. And she said, I'm not having this discussion with you. Mom? Over and over again. Now, to my mom, it must have felt like being tied up in a room and forced to watch Ted Cruz read Green Eggs and Ham on an endless loop. And she finally gave in and let me go roller skating, but not before she said, don't ever pull this again. When I tell you no, don't keep asking. This is ridiculous. And I assured her that, of course, you know, I wouldn't, but I mean, come on. <laughs> I, I didn't really consider it at the time, but being annoying can be a workable strategy for getting what you want. I mean, that's how I grew up thinking about this parable of the widow and the unjust judge. She pestered the judge until he finally caved. And, you know, I mean, if you 
went just right, it's not too difficult to feel bad for the judge. The lesson I took away from it, because Jesus uses this parable to talk about praying, is that if you want something from God, you just have to be prepared to, God, uh, to annoy God like a relentlessly exasperating 12-year-old until you get what you want. Simple. As I got older, I started to think that there's probably more art to the widow's pleas. I mean, she wasn't just irritating, she was clever, maybe even manipulative. When I was not too long out of, my, out of seminary, my first church, somebody had the bright idea that we needed a pictorial directory. If you've ever tried to organize one of those things, you know the headache and grief involved in getting appointments set up, collecting the information from each family, making sure that it's right, the, the, the streets are right, the addresses. You have to check to make sure that the company didn't misspell somebody's name, especially Miss Ollie's, because Lord knows that would have been had long-lasting consequences for nuclear disarmament and the stability of the free world. So anyway, after the pictures had been taken, one woman came to my office and spluttered, I have a complaint. And I said, well, whoa, what's the matter? And she said, I think somebody, something should be done about that directory salespeople. And I said, well, what, I mean, what happened? I didn't want any photographs of myself. I told the, that, the man that the first thing. But he just kept going. I mean, all these slick pitches about why I would want pictures of myself for posterity, blah, blah, blah. But I kept saying, no. He just kept asking. And I said, well, that, that is obnoxious. I'll give you that. I mean, he tried that on us, too. So, but, but what's the problem? I mean, that's their job. And she said, well, I, I don't know how it happened, but I just bought $200 worth of pictures of myself that I don't want. See, maybe that's what the widow did. Tricked the judge into doing what she wanted him to do, not what he wanted to do. Again, not a very flattering picture of either the widow or the judge, and frankly, if this is about petitionary prayer, you know, prayer asking God for something, it doesn't look very good for God either, does it? Fine, look, if you only shut up, I'll give you what you want. But see, I've come to think about this parable differently now. On June 18, 1860, Sheriff showed up at the door of the Reverend Theophilus and Elizabeth Packard with a warrant. Turns out Reverend Packard had grown increasingly aggravated by Elizabeth's burgeoning intellectual life. She kept writing papers and reading them in a Bible school class. Now remember, this is a time when women weren't supposed to exert themselves by anything as strenuous as, you know, thinking. So Elizabeth began disagreeing with him 
in writing in public. Well, eventually, after he meticulously arranged it, being completely distraught, Elizabeth's husband swore out a warrant for her committal to the Jacksonville Insane Asylum in Jacksonville, Illinois. Of course, Elizabeth, stunned, she had an inkling that her husband was growing annoyed by her unwillingness to submit to him, but she persisted in arguing that women have the same rights as men, and we ought to recognize that. Well, at the time of the founding of the Jacksonville Insane Asylum in 1851, the Illinois legislature passed a law requiring a hearing before committing anyone to such a facility. Anyone, that is, except a wife who could be declared insane and committed to an asylum on nothing more than her husband's testimony. And that being the case, women had no recourse to combat such a committal. Indeed, the fact that she challenged the diagnosis was seen as a proof of her insanity. The only way a woman could be judged sane after being committed to an asylum was to shut up and submit to the husband who'd put her there in the first place. And a woman could be deemed insane under the flimsiest pretexts. She spoke too much. She spoke too little. She cried over small things. She failed to cry at anything. She wanted too many babies. She couldn't, didn't want babies at all. She prayed too much. She prayed too little. She was pubescent. She was postmenopausal. If a husband didn't want his wife around, he could have her declared insane and warehoused in an asylum, and there was nothing anybody could do about it. Theophilus Packard had persuaded members of his congregation to swear affidavits testifying to her mental imbalance. He rounded up willing physicians who would swear to her insanity. And there, as I say, there was no appealing the decision to commit. So Elizabeth, isolated and alone, was incapable of saying something was true if she knew it was not. I mean, she couldn't, in other words, shut up and submit to injustice. Which is to say, she couldn't shut up and submit to her husband. Over three years of daily abuse and indignity, Elizabeth worked tirelessly to proclaim her sanity, using every potential remedy and scheme she could think of to outmaneuver her enemies. I mean, she only wanted to be restored to her six children. So eventually, the director of the asylum, who just got completely worn out, by her constant attempts to undermine the efficient work of the insanity assembly line, discharged her. Only to have Elizabeth Packard's husband continuing to fight to put her away. Now, upon her release, Elizabeth published an account of her incarceration, which became a national bestseller and forced the, the sanity hearing she'd been fighting for all this time. 
Finally, somebody would be able to hear her side of the story, and then they could judge. The jury took seven minutes to find her sane. Didn't take much of anything to realize that this woman was not only sane, but was She was a force of nature. By the time she died in 1897, remembering the suffering of all the women who'd been unjustly committed, Elizabeth Packard made advocacy for women, especially women's mental health, her life's work. And when she died, her refusal to stay quiet in the face of injustice led to the passage of dozens of laws in over 30 states ensuring the rights of women and the rights of the mentally ill. It's, it's really amazing. She just refused to accept the situation, to accept injustice. Now, Jesus tells a story in our gospel this morning about a widow who goes to see a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. And she asks the judge to grant her justice against her opponent. Now, we don't get any further information about the opponent or the nature of the injustice from which the widow seeks redress. I mean, the text doesn't provide us any details, but the story suggests that her grievances are severe enough that the widow is motivated to keep coming to the judge to, 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 in search of relief. Now, it, it is most likely, given the culture, that the woman is trying to get a fair settlement after the death of her husband and is being opposed by the males in her dead husband's family who have a legal claim to his estate. But they don't have a right to her dowry. The dowry was paid by her family to the husband before the wedding as a kind of insurance policy for the woman in case the husband, you know, died. And because of the judge's indifference to her rightful claims, it appears that the dead husband's family has gotten to him. They're paying him a bribe for a favorable ruling. He's got a reputation, after all, as an unjust judge who neither fears God nor respects people. They know they can buy him. They are, in other words, strengthening an unjust system in which widows have very little recourse against the predators who abuse them. But whatever the case, what we do know is that every time the woman asks for justice, the judge refuses her. Finally, the judge relents, not apparently because he's come to his senses about the truth of the woman's claim, but because he's tired of being worn out and publicly humiliated by this woman's ceaseless requests for justice. I mean, she's relentless. The story concludes by suggesting that, unlike the unjust judge, God doesn't need to be badgered into dispensing justice for those who cry out day and night. 
Now Luke tells us this, that, that, that this parable is an exhortation to pray always and not to lose heart. And traditionally, the interpreters of this passage have continued on this trajectory of sort of textual spiritualization, rendering the few details of the parable extraneous and unnecessary for understanding the spiritual intention of the story. I mean, so what? She's a widow. Big deal. It could just as easily have been a man seeking justice. The point, they argue, is the persistence in asking. So it's a judge. Who cares? It could have been a farmer or a merchant who also happens to be callous. The point is, from their perspective, that an imperfect human being refused to respond to the woman's cries until being badgered, which is obviously unlike how God would handle it. In other words, the way I grew up interpreting this passage, Jesus pulls a couple of sort of stock characters out of the narrative hat and puts them together in a situation that allows him to show how generous and helpful God is to those who just keep asking for it. But you see, this, this traditional spiritual interpretation of the persistent widow and the unjust judge fails to take into account that Jesus doesn't use just any characters. He uses a widow and a judge to tell this story, not a man and a merchant. Now, these details are important because widows and unjust judges were people that everyone knew. And this kind of justice seeking by the powerless was an occurrence everyone could immediately understand. Widows, as we've said before, in the ancient Near East were among the most vulnerable members of society, obvious and frequent targets of exploitation by those in power. Now, the fact that Jesus used the character in the story of a powerless widow on the verge of destitution is not a throwaway detail. It's central to the point that Jesus wants to make. Moreover, this unsympathetic judge isn't just an obnoxious neighbor who refuses to clean up after his 200-pound mastiff. This is a man in the community who has power over people's lives, over their futures. That the judge feels no particular moral obligation toward the woman would be, in the mind of Jesus' Jewish listeners, an affront to the demands of Torah. I mean, an unjust judge is like a, 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 a physician who makes people sick on purpose. Uh, an auto mechanic who puts sugar in the gas tank. Now, setting aside for a moment Luke's focus on prayer, in this parable, Jesus takes aim at a state of affairs in which the powerless find themselves repeatedly at the mercy of those who have power over them. Put more simply, Jesus condemns a system where widows can't assume that they'll receive justice. In fact, to find justice, they have to make spectacles of themselves, embarrassing and shaming the powerful who are not only supposed to know better, they're supposed to be better. In other words, Jesus attacks a system in which justice is only for those who can afford it. And unfortunately, this kind of system flourishes because it flies under the radar. See, when nobody speaks out against 
that kind of a system. The big shots get to fleece those who have no power to defend themselves with impunity. See, silence is like fertilizer for injustice, which requires for its survival that nobody makes it public. But the widow, like Elizabeth Packard, refuses to remain silent, refuses to let the men tell her just to shut up and submit. Walter Wink wrote, when anyone steps out of the system and tells the truth, lives the truth, then that enables everyone else to peer behind the curtain too. Anyone who steps out of line therefore denies it in principle and threats, threatens the whole system in its entirety. If the main pillar of the system is living a lie, then it is not surprising that the fundamental threat to it is living the truth. You see, this, this is a parable about justice, about who dispenses it and at what cost. It's a parable that does a takedown of a system designed to grant justice to the vulnerable only after they beg and plead for it, only when they make everybody uncomfortable and anxious. They raise their voices when manners dictate that the discourse should remain peaceful, polite. They bring their bullhorns and their signs. They refuse to sit at the back of the bus or eat at a different lunch counter. They reject the idea that they're second-class citizens. And the folks in charge think they're loud and obnoxious. Not in the same way that middle schoolers who want their way can be for, or, or, or salespeople working on getting you to buy just one more upgrade. The folks in charge think that they're loud and obnoxious and they just wish they would find a, a, a more satisfying way, a calmer way of expressing their dissent. See, unfortunately, we've been socialized to believe that justice should take a back seat to politeness. But the problem with that is that protest, the, the, the cry of the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, the, the LGBTQ person, the young black man, the seven-year-old asylum seeker, that kind of protest is always transgressive. If you let the folks in charge determine the rules of dissent, you don't have a protest, you have an officially sanctioned pep rally. And we who claim to follow Jesus have a responsibility to pray without ceasing, to be sure, but we pray unceasingly to God, not so that our supplications through them, that, that, that God might be tricked into giving us what we want, but so that through our persistence in the face of injustice, we continue to seek the heart of the one who wants a world where widows don't have to plead for justice. Because in that world, justice will be all we know. We pray not so that God might get frustrated and finally provide us with what we think we deserve, but so that God's reign here on earth might be revealed to everyone. 
a reign where the vulnerable and the destitute, the unseen and the unheard, the abused and the neglected will not be an afterthought to those in power. They will be the people whose protection is the very reason power gets wielded in the first place. See, according to Jesus, God stands in opposition to those in power who think first of themselves and the interests of those important enough to buy influence. And God stands in solidarity with widows, orphans, strangers in the land, with black parents afraid for their children, with LGBTQ kids afraid of their parents, with 10-year-old girls forced to give birth to a baby they had no say in creating, with all those who are regularly trans trampled underfoot by the people who are supposed to be protecting them. I mean, after all, God is big enough not to be badgered into doing the right thing for the most vulnerable among us. Why? Because God already desires the best. And if we believe what we say about Jesus, then we shouldn't need to be badgered into doing the right thing either. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.